Well, Brian was uh, supposed to preach today in place of Skyler, and Friday night he contacted me and was feeling sick enough. He didn't know how he would be feeling today and asked if I could be ready to cover. Uh, so I was telling Tim before Sunday school, I'm the substitute for the substitute. And Tim, whose spiritual gift is apparently not mercy, said, we call that third string. <laughs> so Lisa, I feel for you having to live with a man with no heart, no mercy at all. Um, but I'm thrilled to be third string. It means I get to preach God's word to God's people today, so I'm grateful for that. Brian asked if maybe, uh, since it was such short notice, if I could preach a message that I preached last weekend. Last weekend, I had a chance to be in East Texas to do a Disciple Now retreat for a church down there and loved being with God's people down there as well. And I thought about that. Um, we did a great uh, series down there. The youth minister had picked a series for the students that I thought was excellent and stayed and preached there on Sunday morning as well. But I actually this morning would like um, to take a few minutes to look at a verse in the New Testament. It's in 1 Timothy, if you want to turn that direction, that I have been thinking through. I've never preached just on this verse, but I have been thinking through and wondering about this verse and all that's in it. You may have known those people in life, because this verse reminds me of those people those people who, uh, maybe it was a friend you had or a teacher back in school, occasionally, on very rare occasions, this could be said of a preacher, but there are people who can say a great deal in a very small amount of time. I mean, they're, they're gifted that way. I remember being in a speech class once, and the teacher would be like, your speech has to be somewhere between four minutes and eight minutes or something, and, and so one of the students got up and, and preached, and and she said more in four minutes. I mean, she just barely got over the four-minute hurdle, but she said more in four minutes than most of us said if we took the whole eight minutes. And there are people like that. You say, they can say more in five minutes than I could have said in 30 minutes. I may have given you this example before. It's the clearest one I have of my mom doing this once. When Wendy and I were dating, uh, and I realized I was falling in like at least with this girl, maybe more, I wanted, I wanted her to go meet my parents, and so we, we went to Borger where my parents were living and spent the weekend with them, and she got to do some things with my mom, and I, really, I respected my mom. My mom's gone to be with the Lord now, but I love my mom and respected her, and I, I do believe sometimes women can have a better take or a better feel on other women than men do, and the same's true. Some men get a better read on other men than women do, and I love my mom. So after she had spent part of a day with Wendy, I asked her, what do you think of Wendy? I mean, I really want to know. You know, if, if it had been my brothers, they'd be like, you want to know what we know? And I'd be like, not really. I mean, I don't care, but I do want to know what mom thinks. And I was ready for 10 or 15 minutes. I like this about her, not so sure about this. Have you asked her about this? And, but I said, mom, what do you think of Wendy? And her response was this, Doug, don't blow this. And I remember looking back thinking, how can you, in three words, don't blow this. Tell me what you think of Wendy, and in those same three words, tell me what you think of me. <laughs> Apparently, I have a track record of blowing things. I have the potential to really blow this, so I know everything my mom now thinks about Wendy and what she thinks about me, and she did it in three words. The verse we're going to read this morning has that um, ability to me to say so very much. The verse we're going to read in most English translations is about 16 words. 
when Paul wrote it in the Greek that the New Testament was written in, it's just 12 words. It's 12 words that express five major convictions. And I, you can do that when God's inspiring you to write. You can have this economy of words where you say so much in, in 12 words. Most of us guys, if we're texting our wives that we're going to be late getting home for supper, we can't even do that in 12 words. And yet Paul hammers out these five major convictions in 12 words. So if you found 1 Timothy, would you turn to chapter 2, and I'm going to read verse 5. You may notice all five of these major convictions as we read them. If not, I just want to take a moment this morning to point them out to you. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to his best friend in the whole world. He's writing to a fellow partner in ministry. Paul's the older man. He's writing to a, a pastor, Timothy, who's much younger than him. Paul has asked Timothy to stay in Ephesus to help the church there that the book of Ephesians is written to. And as Paul's writing to him, early in this personal letter to Timothy, Paul lays down some major markers in 12 words, bold lines about things that we still need to make sure we recognize today. So let me give you the first one. We'll work through the five, and you see if you don't see all of them as well, and maybe see how important they are. The first great conviction that Paul affirms is the reality of God. God does exist. So when he starts in verse 5 by saying there's one God, he's acknowledging this isn't all there is. The atheists are wrong. The agnostics need to make their minds up. This is one conviction about life that you can't be vague on. There's no margin for error. There's no grading on the curve. Every individual either believes there is a God however they define it, whatever they mean by that, somewhere out there, up there, there is a God, or people believe there's not. I mean, it's not a multiple-choice question. There's only two options. Once you decide there is a God, you have to start sorting out what's he like or what are they like, or you say there is no God. But all that we see, church, and all that we experience and our very lives are not an accident. We're, we're not at the top. There's, there's something bigger and stronger and better and more than us. This conviction is a defining conviction in someone's life. Either they believe there's a God or there's not. So Paul starts by claiming there is a God. Timothy, as you're working there in Ephesus, surrounded by people who some don't believe there's a God and some who believe there is, I'm just going to remind you there is a God. Christians, of course, know this. If you're a follower of Christ, this is easy. This is, you're already there. Look back up in verse 1 of this chapter. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. 
Christians, of course, know there's a God. That's why we pray. Verse 1 is about prayer and all different kinds of prayer, supplications and requests and thanksgiving. Who are we making intercession and requests to if there's not a God? I mean, are we just talking to ourselves when we pray if there's not a God? Who are we making thanksgiving to in verse 1 if we don't believe, verse 5, the reality of God? You know, just a few months ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving. It is absolutely the most ridiculous holiday in the world if you don't believe there's a God. Who are you pausing to thank? Get your whole family together and you say, all right, let's, God, we thank. Wait a minute, we, I don't believe there's a God. So you're left just thanking yourself. I thank myself for my family. I thank myself for this great meal. I thank myself for my health. I thank myself for my opportunities. I thank myself... If you don't believe in God, Thanksgiving is an absolutely ridiculous holiday. So Paul says, listen, Timothy, remember the reality of God. God does exist, even though so many people in the world want to deny that. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, only a fool would say in his heart, there is no God. So you're either with Paul saying, I believe in the reality of God, or you're in Psalm 14 where you're a fool living life like there is no God. I would just say, as we hope for the salvation of people we know, we pray for the salvation of people we know, this is the first convictional step. This is convictional step number one in someone becoming a Christian. If someone doesn't believe God exists, I don't care what else they believe, they're not a Christian. I mean, this is ground zero. You have to believe there is a God. So in life's big questions, the really big questions in life, this is the first really big one. How do we get here? This, this is a question of origins. Is this all an accident? Is there a God? Are we in charge, or is there somebody bigger than us that's in charge? And some people find it offensive that we insist on the reality of God. But he gets... More specific than that, in his second affirmation in this verse, Paul also has a great conviction that narrows Christianity even more. Not only does he claim the reality of God, but secondly, he claims there's only one God. Verse 5, he starts out, there is one God. We refer to this as being monotheistic, mono being one. We just believe there's one God. He's not one among many. He's not one among a few. He's one among one. There is one God. Church, do you realize how unpopular this would have been in the first century for Paul to write this and churches to believe this and he expect people to say this out loud? The Roman Empire was filled with gods, plural. I mean, they were everywhere. The Roman Empire imported the gods from the people they conquered. If they conquered a people or a country and they forced you to become part of the Roman Empire, they didn't care if you kept your gods, plural. Just don't say your gods are stronger than anybody else's. If keeping your little deities will keep you at peace in the Roman Empire, you can have your gods. Caesar himself claimed to be a god. If you remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul's walking around Athens, and there's temples. They're celebrating so many different gods. 
that Luke records, Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And along comes Paul and he says, hey, don't forget this, Timothy, there's only one. Truth number one, the reality of God. Truth number two, the reality of one. There's only one God. Can you imagine how, how awkward this would be if you had lived, if you were a follower of Christ in the first century and your neighbors, wherever you lived in the Roman Empire, were not Christians because the vast majority were not followers of Christ and your neighbor begins that conversation with you. Hey, you Christians believe in God, don't you? Like the God of the Old Testament or whatever you guys believe. And your answer is yes. And then your neighbor says, um, do you think your God is stronger than all of our gods? And your answer is no. I don't believe our God is stronger than all of your gods. And your neighbor says, well, good, maybe we will get along. And then you say, that's because I believe our God's the only God. Our God's not stronger than your God. Our God's the only God. And our God demands a monopoly on all worship. And all of a sudden, your neighbor's like, we're not going to get along. Because you can say anything you want as long as you don't run down all the other gods. And you're like, there are no other gods. I won't run them down. They don't exist. They're all lies. It's all false religion. They're all pretend. They're all fake. My God doesn't have to be stronger. There's no competitors. There, there's nobody else. He's all alone. That, that would have caused so much offense in the first century. And by the way, it still causes offense today, doesn't it? We live in such a pluralistic world, a secular culture, where anything goes and you do whatever you want and find your own religion and find your own truth. And along comes Christianity and says, um, there's only one Wendy and I have noticed this even in working with our Taiwanese students because they come from a country where there's just lots of gods. And when you talk to them about following Christ, you have to make it clear to them that Christianity is never about addition. It's never about adding Christ to all the other gods you may embrace. It's about saying all of those are wrong and he's alone. You don't get to add him to everything else. And that's difficult. Well, can't can I just? No. You can't. If you follow the God of the Bible, you follow on his terms, and his terms are I'm one God among one. And I demand absolute worship. So Paul's saying here, you must believe in the reality of God and you must believe in the reality of one. He's all by himself. Isaiah 44, 6 says it this way. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. I mean, could Isaiah have been any more clear in recording what God said? Besides me, there are no gods. Old Testament Israel was surrounded by nations that were polytheists. I mean, there were gods everywhere. Uh, I've been reading through some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's amazing. The minor prophets end up telling them, don't, here's, they don't say, don't go worship the Baal, which was a, a name for one of the foreign deities. It's almost always plural. They're like, don't go worship the Baals. 
because they had so many of them. They had a God that was supposed to help their agriculture. They had a God that was supposed to help um, their wives be fertile. They had a God that was supposed to fight against their enemies. They had another Baal that was supposed to do this. And, and the Old Testament prophets were having to say, don't chase after all those plural gods. So Old Testament Israel knew what it was like to be surrounded by people who believed in, in many gods. Greek mythology taught there was multiple gods and they were always fighting each other. If you're familiar with Greek mythology, they were always warring against each other to see who could be the supreme god. And Hindus today teach that there are literally millions of gods. So this isn't new, and it's still around today that many religions teach there are multiple gods. And along comes Paul, and in 12 short words, he affirms the reality of God and that he's absolutely all alone. There's only one God. Well, third, he says there's one God and there's one mediator. The third great conviction Paul affirms is that something went terribly wrong. There is a problem. Because the only time you need a mediator is if there's a crisis. The only time you need a mediator is if two parties are not getting along. Paul affirms in these 12 words that something went horribly wrong. And we couldn't fix it. We needed a mediator to come stand in the middle between the two parties that weren't getting along. So when he uses the word mediator in these 12 words, he's acknowledging something went terribly wrong with the plan. God's acknowledging our sin, Paul is highlighting our sin, that's what went wrong, and we need a mediator to get us back to God. Something did go wrong. We rebelled. We sinned. All of us since Adam and Eve have been sinning. It's not just that we make mistakes. We sin. We're guilty. There's a moral element to it. It wasn't just bad choices I made. I could have made a better choice, but the one I made wasn't that bad. We sinned. We did not obey the Lord. We did not keep his commands. We've not loved him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, as he says. That's, we haven't done that. Something went so wrong, and I'm so broken that I can't fix it, and God had to send a mediator. The word mediator in this verse implies that something went terribly wrong. I needed someone to help close the gap between me and the one God of the universe. You know, if you believe there were hundreds of gods in the universe and something went wrong, there's a crisis or a conflict between me and this one out of 100, I might just go try my luck with another one of the 99. When it becomes a problem is if there's not 100, there's just one. I can't, I can't go to plan B. I desperately need a mediator because there's only one God and things aren't good between him and I. And I can't go anywhere else. I desperately need this mediator. And please know that God took the initiative to provide the mediator. Some of these songs Larry had us sing this morning are, are right in this vein. He is the mediator, and God's the one who took the initiative to provide him. It wasn't like we realized as sinful people that things weren't right between us and God, and so we picked somebody from our group to go and stand in the middle between us and God and be the mediator. 
God's the one who sent the mediator. And by the way, he didn't meet us in the middle. He came all the way down to where we are. So then he could stand in the middle for us. Paul has affirmed, now watch this, Paul has affirmed the reality of God. He's defended the biblical doctrine that there's only one God. And he's acknowledged that something went terribly wrong and it's our sin and we need a mediator. And so far in the original language, it's taken him six words to do that. He's acknowledged those three major convictions in six words. But the fourth one is related to that third one. The fourth great conviction Paul affirms in this verse is that there's only one mediator that can help. Yeah, you have to acknowledge there is a God. You have to acknowledge there's only one God. You have to acknowledge something went wrong, so we need a mediator. And he follows it up with his fourth conviction, there's only one mediator that can help. Just like there's only one God, there's only one possible helper. And it's his son, Jesus Christ. One God and one way to be right with him. You know, there are people back in Paul's time and in our time who would argue with that. Many of them have daytime TV talk shows. And they argue all the time, there are multiple roads to the top of the mountain. I mean, if God's on the top of the mountain, pick your road, just make sure it's going uphill, not downhill, and there are lots of ways, there are lots of roads to reach the top of the mountain. And they'll ask, is God so narrow-minded that he insists on just one road? Can I just tell you, I mean, by the grace of God, that's no longer the way I look at it. Is God so narrow-minded that he only provided one road? I'm just so grateful he provided even one. Aren't you? I mean, I'm the one who rebelled. He didn't have to build the road. How could I get upset at him that he built, didn't build ten roads? I'm just thrilled he built one. I mean, that's, I, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for no one. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. We call this the exclusivity of Christ. It's very offensive. He excludes every other way. And Paul's affirming that in these 12 short words. There's one God. There's one mediator because something went wrong. And he's the only help. Today, things are so much like the first century, people don't want to believe that. Find your own way, find your own truth, whatever works for you. And God's like, yeah, that's not, that's not my terms. I graciously provided one mediator. He's your only hope. He's not just the last ship out. He's the only ship out. You know, when we're talking to people about do they want to follow Christ, these are actually some of the core convictions they have to come to. The four we've already talked about. They have to, trying to share your faith with somebody, you're like, listen, I, you have to believe there's a God. And they might be like, you know, I, I look at creation and I'm not crazy enough to believe this is all some accident. So they're with us sometimes on the first step. You have to believe there's a God. And they're like, okay, I, I'll buy that. Somebody's up there. And then you say, um, by the way, you can only believe there's one God. All the others are lies. 
And they're like, so every other religion, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, all those millions of people are all believing lies, and I have to believe there's only one God? And you're like, yeah, and they're like, hmm, hurdle's getting a little higher here. And then you tell them you have to believe something went wrong, and what went wrong was us. We're sinful, broken people. So you have to admit you're a sinner. And you have to admit there's only one solution, one hope, one mediator, and you have to embrace him. And all of a sudden, people are not as quick to embrace all of this as they are to say there's, there's a, the reality of God up there somewhere. They'll go with us on that one. The rest of them, the steps get a little harder to climb. That's why Jesus said it's a narrow road and a small gate, and few find it. You, you can't go through that gate with all of your extra baggage. The gate's just wide enough to go through with you and Christ. So it's a narrow gate. It's a narrow road. You know, why is Jesus the only mediator? Why does he say that? This fourth major conviction he has. Why does he say there's one God and one mediator? There's just one. It, look down at the very next verse. I'll show you why he's the only mediator. Verse 5 again, For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Who gave himself as a ransom for all. The mediator had to give himself as a ransom. We think of the word ransom when a child is kidnapped and something's paid to get them back. That's very much how the word is used here. Jesus had to pay the ransom, or... To say it more accurately, Jesus had to be the ransom. He paid it with his own life. So there was only one person available who could pay the ransom, therefore there was only one mediator. Jesus' perfect life made his perfect death the perfect ransom. If he hadn't lived a perfect life sinless, if he hadn't died a perfect death as a sacrifice, he couldn't have been the perfect ransom. So the picture is him buying us back from our slavery to sin, and he did it with his own death. He was a living mediator, then he became a dying mediator, and then when the resurrection happened, he became a living mediator again, forever at the right hand of the Father, mediating for us. I love the song Larry just had us sing. Shameful sin placed on him the hope of every man. That's because he's the only hope. He's the only mediator. Well, the fifth one, I'll take just a second here because I think this is such an important one. What else does Paul affirm in these 12 short words? There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. His fifth great conviction that he affirms is that God's son became a man. He actually became a man. The humanity of Christ is affirmed in this verse. We call that the incarnation. We celebrated it last month with Christmas. Christ left heaven, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. The angel told Joseph, the, the earthly father of Jesus, you'll call his name Emmanuel because it means God with us. God actually took on flesh and dwelt among us. Paul, at the end of these 12 words, is affirming the humanity of Christ. He actually became a man like us. He literally says in this verse, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ, a man. He's Jesus Christ, a man. 
Paul affirms the miracle of God's son coming as a man. This has actually been um, tricky throughout church history. I don't want to bore you with the church history of it, but Christians have grappled with this um, God becoming a man because it's one of those things kind of like the Trinity that it's hard to get your mind totally wrapped around. How could fully God become fully man in one person? And yet that's what the Bible teaches. One person, perfect unity, one person with two natures. And the two natures didn't mix. It wasn't like the divine nature mixed with his human nature, because if it had, it would have changed the divine nature. And it wasn't the divine nature mixed with the human nature, because then he wouldn't have been a man like us. It's a miracle that in one person you could have two distinct, separate natures that didn't ever combine. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul emphasizes the divine side. If you'll look with me, I'll just show you in a couple places where in 1 Timothy 1... Because chapter 1 is more about the divine side of Christ. In chapter 2, he calls him a man. In verse 1, Paul says that Christ Jesus is our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1. We don't put our hope in men. We put our hope in God. So if Christ Jesus is our hope, he's saying in verse 1, he's God. In verse 2, He says that mercy and peace come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ is also the source, along with the Father, of our mercy and peace. So he's our hope and he's our source of mercy and peace. That sounds like God, not like just a man. In verses 2, he's called our Lord. In verse 12, he's called our Lord. And in verse 14, he's called our Lord. Paul is calling him Lord. He's, he's not just like us. He's our master. He's the Lord. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says he came into the world to save sinners. He wasn't created at Bethlehem. That's just when he made his entry, which means he was preexistent. He existed before he became a man. That's just when he came in. So chapter 1, he's highlighting that he's Lord. He's Lord. He's one with God. He's our source of mercy. He's our hope. He came into the world, but he existed before and in chapter 2, he's like, by the way, he's a man. That, that's head spinning if you haven't grown up hearing that. The full nature of God. Colossians 1.19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wow. And yet a man, Philippians 2.7 says, Being born in the likeness of men. And Paul's saying in these 12 words, you have to embrace that too. He was God, come as a man. I I do think, let me just tell you this, because I'll just give you a couple of examples that over the years I've tried to sort out in my mind. I think believing that he's one person with two natures helps you sort out some of the other passages in the Bible that that could make you scratch your head if you you didn't get that right, that the identity of Christ, that he's has the full divine nature in him and a full human nature in him all in one person. When you read verses like um, that Jesus was tempted to sin, he went out in the wilderness, fasted for 40 days, and then was seriously tempted to sin. And Hebrews says he was tempted to sin just like we're tempted, so he understands our temptation. So Jesus was tempted. 
James chapter 1 says God cannot be tempted, ever. God is never tempted. Jesus is God. God is never tempted. Jesus was tempted. How do you sort that out? Well, I think the best way is to say you have one person with two natures, and in his divine nature, he was never tempted. But in his human nature, oh, those temptations look good. Turning stones to bread after 40 days of not eating, that appealed to his human nature. He was tempted in his human nature, but the backstop of his life was his divine nature, and it was never tempted. Or what about those verses that say Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? If you're fully God, how do you grow in wisdom? How can you not know something on Tuesday, but by Friday you know it? and you grew in wisdom if you're God and you knew everything on Tuesday. If you're fully God, you know everything. And yet, multiple places say Jesus grew in wisdom. How do you do that? Well, his divine nature never learned a thing because he knew all. But in his human nature, as a young kid, as a teenager, he did learn stuff on Friday that he didn't know on Tuesday. His human nature did grow in wisdom. That's what the Bible says. His divine nature never grew. And yet how, how that comes together in one person is a miracle, but understanding the identity of Christ is so important because it helps explain some of those other passages. It also helps explain why he could be the ultimate mediator because he represented both parties perfectly. He had a human nature just like us, and he had a divine nature, and he could, he could bring us together with the one God who was offended by our rebellion. He was both parties, so he could be the mediator for both parties. Well, 12 short words. 1 Timothy 2.5 is a very short verse in your English translation or the Greek. And yet packed in it, if you slow down and think through what Paul is affirming here, you have to believe in the reality of God. You have to believe in the uniqueness of God, that he's one among one. You have to believe that a tragedy happened and something went very wrong, so we need a mediator. That's our sin. You have to believe that Christ alone is our only hope. He's the only mediator that could fix it. And you have to believe that Christ became a man and dwelt among us. And Paul says all five of those things in 12 words. May I encourage you this week as you think about your Savior Christ, think about him in the terms that's used in verses 5 and 6. He's man, mediator, and ransom. That pretty well sums up the three most important events in Christ's life. Man, that's when he came at Christmas and took on flesh. He's mediator, which means after his resurrection, he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And when he died on the cross, he was our ransom. He's man, mediator, and ransom, and it represents the three major gifts he gives us when you put your faith in Christ. Paul's laying down these markers early in the book to remind young Timothy, hey, here's the things we can't compromise on. I know the work's hard in Ephesus. I know you're outnumbered in Ephesus. Don't give in. And I can sum it up in just these 12 words. And I would say these are five of the most foundational major convictions that believers must hold to in a world that's moving away from them. If you're here this morning and you're like, I, I've never personally followed Christ. I've never said he's real. He's the only real God. Christ is the only mediator. 
And, and this morning, as we've talked through these 12 words in your heart, you're like, I, I would, I, I'm willing to follow Christ and leave all this behind. I believe all the others are lies, and Christ is my only hope. And God does a work in your heart, and you feel him drawing you and extending grace and forgiveness. And today, you would say, I, I would like to follow Christ on his terms. It's a free gift for anybody. It's available. He was the ransom for all. That gift is available to you today where he would pay your price, be your substitute, and take your sin. But these are convictions that have to be believed if it's really going to be real in your life. If you're here this morning and you believe these five convictions, <clears throat> God's turned the light on, you've been able to see them sometime in your life in the past, and you're like, I, I, I get it. I, God, I believe all of those things that Paul says in this verse. Would you take time this morning as we sing here in a minute just to celebrate that gift that God sent the mediator and you've embraced the mediator and it's been a life change for you, that that free gift was available? Would we just recommit to these five things? I've wondered sometime if Paul and my mom could have a conversation, it would be a very short one because they both could say so much, don't blow this, or 12 words that embraces five major truths. May we be able to articulate what we believe in such a short, succinct way. God, thank you for this verse. I thank you for what it means to me, just having thought through it the last several weeks. All that's wrapped up that this world doesn't want to believe. They, they don't really want to believe that something went terribly wrong. This lost world wants to believe things are getting better. This lost world wants to believe you can kind of create a God in your own image. It can be any God. Just be sincere. And this verse says that's not true. It's one God. God, for all the people who believe that maybe they're on a road that would reach the top of the mountain, but it's not the road you built, it's, it's some other man-made religion, would you graciously open their eyes to the fact that there's only one mediator? And Jesus, we stopped this morning to celebrate the fact that you were willing to leave all the glory in heaven, set aside some of those privileges, none of your deity, you didn't set aside any of being the fullness of God. You just set aside some of the privileges of that and came down here to become in the likeness of man. Thank you for that truth. We believe all of these things, God, because we believe your word and we celebrate them today. With your eyes closed, if there is someone here that would say, I, I, I need to talk to somebody about this Savior, I'll be down here on the front row. I'll try to be the last one to leave this room. I would love to visit with you about that and what it means to follow Christ. Or you may see someone else here this morning that you know is a Christian, and you'd rather talk to them. I bet they would stay as long as needed to to talk to you about this. Father, we thank you for this short verse packed full in Christ's name.